What a year. Fear, anger, frustration, lack of trust in our political and, and national leaders. No single boy, voice seems to be able to rise above the din and the noise of all that's happening to unite us, to remind us of who we are in this great nation. We are the United States of America. There does not seem to be a voice. What a year. Protests in the street, families torn apart, friendships broken. What a year. I'm speaking, of course, of 1968. You may see some parallels with the current year. Maybe the last six or seven years have felt as though they're filled with those same kinds of, of emotions and feelings and friendships breaking and all the rest. But I'm thinking specifically today of 1968. Remember some of the things that happened that year? A young preacher who came from a pulpit in the sweet Auburn neighborhood of Atlanta, Georgia, and came out to national prominence, to the national stage with a dream, a dream of racial equality, of equality for all. A young Martin Luther King who was leading the world to a brighter day. His life was ended in Memphis, Tennessee by an assassin's bullet. A few months later, Bobby Kennedy would run for president. I was only nine years old in 1968, but I was caught not only by the cadence and content of Dr. King's preaching, but also by the, by the message of hopefulness that young Bobby Kennedy brought to his campaign for president. Oh sure, there was tragedy in his family as well. His brother's life had been ended five years before. I was only nine, but I was getting caught up in, in politics and church in a way that I never had in my young life before, and I was excited to watch Kennedy's run. Now, don't worry about the politics of it. As a nine-year-old, all I heard was hope and beauty and joy and new life and new beginnings, and then his life. On the night that he celebrated his victory in the California primary, was taken by an assassin's bullet as well. There were protests in the street. Vietnam was dividing the nation. And, the, and every day that passed seemed to bring more and more divide, more and more questions about why are we in this war? Why are we bothering to, to be at war with these people in this faraway land? What's it about? And like I said, friend and friend were divided. Families were split. Our nation was in danger of being torn apart. I was only nine years old, but I remember vividly a conversation that my father, my dad was a pastor, that my father had with a couple of church leaders in our home one night. I've never told, I never, while my dad was alive, I'd never told him this story. Mom, I know you're watching. I don't think I've told you either. So forgive me in advance. I heard these muffled voices in the living room. It was past my bedtime. So I snuck out of bed and came down to the end of the hall where I could sit and listen, but not be seen. By the way, parents, if you want, ever want to be sure that your children listen when you're speaking, talk in low, muffled voices. <laughs> it was in a serious voice that my dad said to these two church leaders who were there, I'm worried about our country. I'm afraid of civil war, that we could soon break out in a civil war. I was only nine. I was frightened and worried for our country for what was going to happen next. I tell you all of that because that's the context 
in which the, the song that is inspiring this sermon series, Like a Bridge Over Troubled Water, was written. Paul Simon sat down in the spring of 1969 and wrote these words. When you're weary, feeling down, when tears are in your eyes. You see, he was disgusted with what he saw was happening in the world. He was upset about the, the racism. He was upset about the violence of war. He was upset about the way the nation was being torn apart. And he sat down and intentionally wrote what he called a gospel, not gospel. Those are his words. He wanted to write a gospel, but not gospel, anthem. In other words, he didn't want to insert God's presence into it. He just wanted to write some kind of an anthem that would have a gospel feel to it that could raise the nation above the noise and the distrust and the fear and the rest and be a uniting voice. And in many ways, he was able to do that. When you're weary, when you're feeling down, when tears are in your eyes, there's a biblical feel to it, isn't it? Isn't there? I, that's not an original thought on my part. Many commentators that I read in, in the last few weeks getting ready for this, this sermon series have said there's a, there's a biblical tone to it. I will lay me down, repeated in the chorus over and over again, has a biblical feel to it. In fact, I would add, it sounds like an echo of the very ministry of Jesus. I will give my life. I will lay down my life for my friends. I will give myself. It's an echo of the ministry of the church for 2,000 years. So there's a universal biblical kind of context, but it's also interesting to note that at the same time he was penning these words and composing this music in the spring of 1969, he and Art Garfunkel were in a serious conflict. Did you, do some of you know that? Do you remember this from back in the day? If you were around back then, they were in a serious conflict with each other. There was envy, envy and jealousy and, and they really didn't like the attention that the other one was getting. It's kind of unbelievable and silly to think about. I mean, they're 27 years old. They've had four best-selling albums. They've had two number one hits around the world. They are now superstars on the world stage, and they're jealous of each other and envious of the attention that the other is getting. While Simon is writing these words, when you're weary, feeling small, he's thinking of himself as well. Because Art Garfunkel is off in the New Mexico desert filming the film Catch-22, and he's got all these new Hollywood friends, and he just is really jealous of the fact that Art Garfunkel seems to see, has have his star rising higher than Paul Simon's. How, how silly it is. But at the same token, you can raise your hand if you want to. Have you ever had a silly argument with somebody that you look back on it, days, weeks, months, or even years later and thought, boy, that was silly. Why did I do that? Deb Lindsay raised her hand. There's, there's one, a few of you have. Thank you very much. Mary-Kate, we need to work on some pastoral care for all the folks being honest and open about their lives. Yeah, it's, just, it's, so, it's so silly, but maybe that's part of the beauty of this song, frankly. There is that universal nature when the world just seems to be falling apart, as Psalm 46 says, or when our own personal lives don't seem to line up very well. Do you know that after 9-11, this song returned to the charts? People went to Bridge Over Troubled Water for a sense of hope, a sense of, of trust that somehow, some way, we will get through this. Were you weary? Were there tears in your eyes at 9-11? In the same way in my own life, there was a period of discontent in my ministry. Wasn't quite sure what to do or where to go or, or, or even how to preach. So I found myself up late one night reading I had my headphones on, 
put my computer on random, just play random music, and up pops Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And I'm not embarrassed to admit there were tears in my eyes. You see the song, he said, I don't intend for it to be gospel. It's gospel, not gospel. But Paul Simon couldn't control the spirit. Did you know that Aretha Franklin wrote an arrangement? Our nine o'clock band sang it this morning. Aretha Franklin wrote an arrangement two years after it came out and she took it to church because the spirit somehow had woven its way in those words. Simon was even quoted in in an interview in 2012 to say that sometimes people heard and read more truth in my words and my music than I intended. That's a humble and true statement. Sometimes the spirit of God is at work no matter what is happening. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I'm certain that when this ancient Hebrew poet, 500 years before the time of Jesus, looked out at his people and his land, there were tears in his eyes. After all, they had been not just through a terrible year, they had experienced generation after generation after generation of exile, loss, disenfranchisement. They'd seen their temple destroyed, not to come back again for many more hundreds of years. They'd seen their kingdoms, the kingdoms of David and Solomon, were now relegated to the dustbin of history. Their people were spread all around the ancient Near East. And yet this one did not allow that generation of loss to define his writing. Instead, he saw, even in that moment of exile, the presence of God among them. They were not going to be defined by the Babylonians. They were not going to be defined by their losses. They were not going to be defined by the worry and the fear that still existed. They were going to be defined by the presence of God. Though the earth changes, better word in the Hebrew translation is crumbles. Though the earth crumbles, though the mountains are thrown into the sea, we will trust in God, our very refuge, our strength, our redeemer. I was in correspondence with Sally and Brian Besky several weeks ago after I learned the terrible news of what was happening to her and the cancer that had filled her body. In one of the texts that I exchanged with Brian, he quoted Psalm 46 with no idea that I was preaching on that text today. He said, Glenn, it feels like the earth is crumbling beneath us. It feels like the mountains have been thrown into the sea. I love it when the Bible speaks to our feelings, our emotions, our fears, and names them. Psalm 46 is very clear. God will eventually bring peace to the world. It has a sense of Thomas Merton, the mystic, says that Psalm 46 is both now and not yet. Now it's like the bread of of fellowship, the bread of faith, the bread of love, given while we're still wandering, lost in the desert. It's a statement that no matter what is happening around us, there will be a day, there will be a day someday when God's peace, God's shalom will be made real for everyone. There's now and not yet. That's the promise of Psalm 46. I hope you heard it as it was read by our deacon this morning. Did you hear what's going to happen? God will destroy the bow, the spear, and the shield. War will be no more. We're not to put our trust in military might. We're to put our trust, our ultimate trust, in the precious love of God. And that's what defines us and who we are. I read a great book this summer while I was away. 
It's called Dancing in the Darkness by Otis Moss. He's a United Church of Christ pastor at the Trinity Church in Chicago. I highly recommend the book for you. It's, it's marvelous. But I want to quote the, the foreword that was written by his friend Michael Eric Dyson, a black pastor as well. Uh, pastor Dyson tells a story about a young teenage girl who is in danger of being defined by what's happening around her. She's in distress. She comes to her mother and, and tells her what's happening. Her mom says, I understand. Come with me into the kitchen. The mother fills three pots with water, places each of them on the stove, turns the flame up to high till it's boiling, till all three pots are boiling. In the first, she places a bunch of carrots. In the second, she places some eggs. In the third, coffee beans. When they're done boiling, she turns off the flame, shows her daughter what has happened. The carrots, she said, went in strong and rigid. Now they're weak and soft. The egg went in fragile and in danger of being broken, but now its insides have been hardened. The coffee bean remains the same, but the coffee bean has transformed the boiling water into a beautiful aromatic coffee that is now filling the room with that amazing aroma. She looks at her daughter and she says, which will you be? Which will you be? Will you be transformed into weakness, softness? Will you, be, will you be transformed into somebody who's hard on the inside and putting up a barrier against everyone? Or will you be like the coffee bean and no matter what is happening, transform the world around and about you? Later in his book, Otis Moss says, we, I am unapologetically Christian. And I circled that and started and highlighted and dog-eared the page. I love that he said that, unapologetically Christian. I thought of a sermon when I read that line from, from Pastor Otis, a sermon that was preached by Mary Kate, when she said it's important for us mainline progressive Christians to be clear about what we are about and what we are for, not just what we are against and what we are not. And that's what Otis is saying in this place. He's unapologetically Christian. He leads an unapologetically Christian church, not a church that is so centered on Jesus that we cut everybody else out. Not a church that says, we're the only ones, the ones that think like us, who matter, are going to get into heaven. None of that nonsense. No. What does it mean to be unapologetically Christian? We live in, in reflection of the life and teachings of Jesus, of God's love for everyone, of grace given universally to all, of forgiveness being at the heartbeat of who we are. That's what it means to be who we are. That's what it means to not be defined by what's happening around us. You know, in 2012, I mentioned a moment ago, Paul Simon released an album called So Beautiful or So What? It's unabashedly spiritual. He says that despite the fact that he didn't want his music necessarily to be about spirituality or theology or God, in his later years now, he's starting to think about all of those things. One of the songs is about heaven and the afterlife. It opens kind of funny. He says that he believes that heaven, when we get there, is going to be like, like the DMV with this super long line of all these people waiting to get in. Just between you and me, that sounds like hell to me. <laughs> but then he, then he ends the song with this beautiful phrase, we will swim in an ocean of love. You see, the Spirit has been at work in his life all these years in conflict with his friend, in conflict with the world as things were just falling apart, the Spirit has always been present. 55 years later, there's a reason that we still sing this song. 
while it still pops up in times of crisis, trial, or turmoil. Just Google it, and you can find it everywhere. 2,500 years after this ancient Hebrew poet wrote these words, God is an ever-present help in times of struggle and danger, it still speaks. It still invites us to not be defined by everything that's happening around us, but instead to stand and rely on our faith, our trust, and our belief in God, in the God whose love, grace, and forgiveness has been given to the world. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, remember there is one who will lay down and be a bridge for your troubled water.